You know, I, uh, I feel like you have such a warm fellowship, and I really consider it a great privilege to be here with you. And I uh, ran into uh, Pastor Cochran uh, recently, and I was telling him that probably about 30 years ago when I was a student at CIU, I um, was in a chapel meeting where he was speaking. And, you know, I don't write down quotes often in my Bibles, but he had a quote uh, that many years ago that I wrote down in my Bible, and I prayed it many, many times over the years. And he, I remember it. He said, God, do whatever you have to do in me so that you can do whatever you want to do through me. And I wrote that down in my Bible, and I prayed it many, many, many times. And I know he was telling me he still prays that prayer. And so it's so, such a privilege to follow him this morning. I feel very privileged to kind of tag team with him on some of the same things that he was mentioning. Earlier, he was talking about how uh, important it is to God to fulfill the mission that he gave us. And my question that I want to address today, and we'll kind of look at it, it might be a bit provocative. It's just a wrestling that I've had for many, many years and ask the question. I don't claim to have the answers, but I do think it's worth us considering. Why has the church been so slow at finishing the task of the Great Commission? Why, after 2,000 years, have we still, to our best knowledge, not completed that task? You know, I became a Christian when I was 23. I was a senior in college. Uh, studying engineering. I got saved through Campus Crusade for Christ, and I began going to a small church that was mostly uh, students at the time. And I remember, I don't remember all of what we share, but I remember after about four or five months, there were three things that stood out to me very clearly from the scriptures. Number one, God loves the whole world. There's not one person on the earth that God doesn't love. Number two, he wants to reach the world with the gospel in our generation. And number three, we get the privilege of joining with him in that ministry. He's allowed us to be a part of that. And today I want us to talk about that, you know, a little bit. Why has it been that we have not, as the Church of Jesus Christ, finished that task of the Great Commission? And uh, I want to pray again because I was telling Paul this morning, I read that today is actually the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I read that this morning. So I thought we'd just lift those uh, brothers and sisters up quickly. Lord, we do just pray for our brothers and sisters around the world today that are laboring in hard circumstances. Lord, I think about the story I read this morning about the North Koreans. They get in their fishing boats and go out into the middle of the lake, and then they pull out their tattered Bibles and study them together. Lord, they're, they're so afraid, uh, in one sense, of the authorities finding them, but the Word of God is so precious to them that they go to great lengths to study Your Word. Might we, O oh God, appreciate and value Your Word like they do. God, we pray for them today. We pray for ones like that young lady who's in prison in Pakistan, Lord, that was released. I heard, at least today or recently, God, we pray there are many, many that are under persecution today. God, we pray for them. We pray as a Western church, affluent church, a church that's been given so much that we would care about our brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, we know you do. And so, Father, we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in my understanding, the Great Commission is the only command that Jesus gave between his resurrection and ascension that's recorded in all four Gospels in the book of Acts. And of course, we know through hermeneutics that repetition means emphasis. So we would have to consider, at least from the Bible standpoint, that the Great Commission is a very, very important command for the church. And even as we saw this morning, God cares a lot about it. And we should care about it too. You know, we see in the Matthew account, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus talks about all authority being given to him and heaven and on earth. And then he tells the disciples to 
to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Of course, the command there is to make disciples. It's not to go. But it's as if you were to make disciples while you're going. And while you're going, you baptize them and you teach them to observe all that he commanded them. And then we see what the command is, again, to disciple the nations. In the Mark account, Mark 16, 15, he says, Go out into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. You see, it's a global scope. Jesus has his heart for the whole world. Luke 24, 46 through 48, he ties down the message of the gospel where he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Again, all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Then in John 20, 21, we see as, if you will, a pattern that he gives us. He said, peace be with you as he's there with his followers after his resurrection. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And of course, that's a great question to ask. How did the Father send Jesus? Of course, he sent him personally, sent him as a servant. I mean, there are many ways to look at that. But Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And of course, in the Acts account, in Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So we see this as a repetition over and over again. And each one of those things is a different emphasis. And yet, if the Great Commission is so important, why have we been so slow to finish the task? I've just been haunted by that question my whole life as a Christian. I've pondered it for many years. And there may be many answers. I've, I've thought of three that I'd just like to suggest for us to consider today. Three answers on why we've been slow to complete it. And I don't mean to come across negative. I meant to say this at the very beginning. I just want you to know I'm not mad today, but I am passionate. And a lot of times when I speak, I come across passionately. And some people have said, Robbie, are you mad? I'm not mad at all. I'm, I'm just filled with great passion over this because it's so near and dear to my heart. So if I come across animated and yell, please, trust me, I'm not mad. I'm just passionate, okay? I think one reason that we've been slow about finishing the task is we really don't understand what the task is. You know, I think a lot of people equate the Great Commission with simple evangelism. You know, people feel like, well, if I know how to share my faith and I just, you know, light up my little corner of the world, if you will, that's my call for my whole life. And yet, while the Great Commission certainly includes evangelism, it's much, much more than that. We know it's disciple-making. It's more than just simply sharing our faith. It's, it's building into the body of Christ. It's building into ones that have come to faith in Christ. It involves multiplication. It involves every ethnic group. It's, it's global in scope. There's strategy involved. It's much more than simply evangelism. And I think it's important because I think a lot of people think that the Great Commission equals simply local evangelism. And that is part of it, but it's way, way more than that. I think secondly, one reason we've been slow to finish it is that we don't really see it as an individual responsibility. There's no question that the Great Commission was given to the church, but people make up the church. And as I read the Gospels in the book of Acts, particularly, I see the Great Commission lived out largely in the lives of individuals, not in corporate structures. It's lived out largely in the lives of individuals whether it's Jesus himself coming, as it were, as a cross-cultural missionary, as we look in Matthew 1, 21 through 23, where it says he's the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 7. You know, he will come and be God with us. He crossed cultures. He took on humanity, never gave up his divinity. He was always fully God, fully man. But he crossed into our world and became a cross-cultural missionary, if you will. 
and lived his life among us. Whether it's Jesus himself, whether it's him sending out the 12 or the 72, whether it's him giving the great commission on the mountaintop, or whether we look at Paul's apostolic teams, it's always through people, and most of the time through small teams of people or individuals that God works. It's not just some way out there corporate idea that was given to this global entity. We have to land the plane and understand what it really means. We see verses like 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, when I've looked at that verse many times, I've thought, well, certainly he's talking about the character of Christ. And that's true. We want to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ's character. But it's very interesting. It also includes a love for the lost. Because in the immediate context in chapter 10, it's an evangelistic context. And so when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's not just saying, imitate my character as I imitate the character of Christ. He's saying, imitate my love for the lost as I imitate Christ's love for the lost. Practically speaking, everyone's responsibility is no one's responsibility. So I've become personally convinced over the years that the Great Commission is a personal commission as well as a corporate commission. While the way we live it out certainly will vary based on our gifting, our circumstances, our calling, etc., it's nonetheless important to recognize that it is every Christian's responsibility to take ownership for the command to disciple the nations. Every Christian's responsibility to take ownership of that command. I really believe that can be proven through Scripture. Thirdly, and I know that this probably and hopefully isn't true for any of us in this room, but as I've lived and as I've gone around a lot, especially in the West, I think a third reason that we haven't finished the Great Commission, this sounds very strong, and I don't mean to be indicting here. I'm looking at my own self in the mirror. It's as if at times we really don't care. We just don't care that the Great Commission gets finished. I wonder sometimes, is even if we say we do, if we live as if we didn't, myself included. You know, our church adopted an Eritrean immigrant family recently, I'd say in the last couple of years. They moved here after 10 years in a refugee camp in Sudan. They had never left Africa. They landed in Colombia. We met them at the airport. It was a man and his wife. They were Muslim. They had eight, eight kids running around. They didn't even have Western clothes. They had their, you know, their coat on or cloak or whatever and the little top hat. You know, he's walking around. And so I got involved with them quite a bit. I took them to get their health cards, and I took them grocery shopping. That was exciting. You see the kids run around in a grocery store they'd never been in. I had a man come up to me who, this was over in Forest Acres. I don't know if he was a Christian. I have to admit, I don't know. But it could, he could have been a Christian. But he was certainly an American, and he was an older man. But he came up to me, and he said, that's what's wrong with our country. We let these people in our country. We need to get rid of all these people and get them out of the country. And I thought, well, if he was a follower of Christ... I'm certainly glad that family couldn't understand English and they didn't understand a bit of it. But the attitude was one of, I just don't care about this person. I just don't care about them. I don't care about the fact that they came from an unreached, unengaged people group in their country of Eritrea. I don't know who the man was. I hope he was just responding out of emotion. I hope that really wasn't what he thought, especially if he was a Christ follower. I preached on immigration once in our church, and I was trying to help people understand the difference between illegal immigration, 
legal immigration and refugees because they're so different. Refugees are legal immigrants when they come here. If they come through the system, they have been vetted and they come and they are legal. They're not illegal, they are legal. That couple that we were helping out, they're legal immigrants. But I had a, a man who texted me right afterwards. I got two texts that day, it was kind of funny. One happened to be my oldest son, who's a millennial. But this man texted me, he said, I can't believe that you're following the liberal line of accepting people in our country from these countries that are destroying our infrastructure and everything. I mean, that's what I got, I got a text after I preached it. My son's text on the other hand said, I can't believe the church isn't opening up their homes and letting these people come and live with them. <laughs> you know, when they come in, I thought, what a generational gap. And as pastors, that's what we're facing often when we preach. We're, we're facing these two extremes of opinion on a lot of different areas. But I thought that's an example of what some people think about lostness and the Great Commission. When I went to the mission field, there was a man in my hometown. I grew up in Hampton County. And I remember going to the church there where I grew up and I was sharing what we were gonna be doing. And I remember him coming up to me afterwards and he just blessed his heart, I loved him. In fact, I just preached his funeral this year. And he said, he said, I can't understand why we send people overseas when there's so many needs right here in our own backyard. I mean, that's a very typical comment from people in our community. And I don't know if it's, maybe in his case, he just didn't understand the Great Commission, but it comes across like we really don't care about finishing the task. Of course, this isn't anything new to our time. I just wrote down this quote to a young William Carey at a pastor's gathering by Dr. Ryland when Carey discussed the need to send missionaries and Dr. Ryland said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without you or me. We probably all read that statement, right? It boggles my mind, but it does seem like there's some Christ followers even that just don't care about the Great Commission in its fullest extent. Several points or principles that I've been wrestling with over the years that I think help inform perhaps the church on how we can be more intentional about actually finishing the task of the Great Commission. And I wanted to just share those with you this morning. I'm not infallible, but I think these will help inform us about this haunting question about why we haven't finished yet. The first one has to do with what uh, Pastor Cochran even shared about this morning. It's that idea of pantatiethne. You can't, I, I can't, if I was a person, I don't have any tattoos. I'll just tell you that right up front. But if I were to get a tattoo, that would be one I would be interested in getting, pantatiethne. Because I think that's so important when we think about the Great Commission. And that means in Greek, all the ethnic groups. That's what it means, all the nations. If you look up in Wikipedia today and say, how many nations are there? You know what you'll see? 195. Because in their mind, they're thinking geopolitical units. That's not exactly what Christ meant. In fact, that's not at all what Christ meant when he said, make disciple of all the nations. It's not what he meant in Matthew 24 when he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's not what he meant. He meant all ethnic groups. Now, nobody knows exactly how many numbers of ethnic groups there are. In fact, it's amazing to me. I hear that missionaries go into some of the last places, and then when they begin to learn the languages, they realize that there's such a distinct dialectical difference in some of these languages, here comes another ethnic group that you have to think about. So we really don't know what they are, but the best estimates we have from IMB and Joshua Project and finishing the task, and there are two or three other groups that are trying to consolidate all this information, is somewhere north of 11,000 distinct ethnic groups in the world today. 
6,000 of those are considered unreached, which means they have less than 2% evangelical believers in there. Why is that important? Because people feel like there needs to be a critical mass of 2% at least to be able to disciple to the fringes of a people group. So if there's less than 2%, there's still a need for mission work to be done among them. And of those 6,000, about half of those, almost 3,000, are considered unreached and unengaged, which means there's no active engagement going on in those people groups yet. And of those 3,000, believe it or not, there's still at least several hundred, if not more, that are unreached, unengaged, and unadopted. They're not even adopted yet for engagement. Some of those are probably ones that have just become known through some of the missionaries that are on the field. The point I'm making with that is simply this, that the task is way more than simply having missionaries in 195 countries. It's way more than that. And we have to understand that. The second thing, and this is something that I've really been wrestling with a lot recently, and I, I just can't, I, God just seems to drive it deeper and deeper into my soul. It has to do with the idea of kairos moments. There are two words for time in the Greek New Testament. One is chronos, which means like it's five till 12 now. That's a specific time, chronos, and then kairos. Kairos is a moment of special opportunity. It's like in Romans 5 when, um, when Paul's writing, he says that, uh, you know, at the proper time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Yet, although for a righteous man, woman dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we yet sinners, Christ after us. Well, that idea, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that's kairos, that's not chronos. It's a moment of special opportunity. And these moments, God sovereignly creates, and the church gets the opportunity to choose to be a part of them. And the church needs to have discerning eyes and be asking as we look globally, where is God uniquely working so that we can enter in? I was in Chicago recently and I was riding back to O'Hare and I was on a bus and there was a Japanese man, an old man, sitting next to me and we started talking on the way to the airport. He was headed back to Tokyo and it comes to, come to find out he was a Bible teacher. He was an Old Testament scholar, had a PhD in Old Testament. And so he was going back to do some training in Japan. And I, I asked him, uh, you know, we started talking and he was just telling me, he said, God bless Douglas MacArthur. He said, because at the end of World War II, General MacArthur said to the churches in the West, send missionaries. The time is now, send missionaries. What he was saying is it was a Kairos moment. Well, this man said that his parents had gotten saved through missionaries that came in right after World War II in Japan. And so he's a third generation Christ follower because of missionaries that responded to that special moment of opportunity that God created. Now, you might say, well, that was World War II, the most horrendous war in our century. Absolutely. But you know what? God can use things like that to create gospel opportunities. I mean, we see that historically. Look what happened when Alexander the Great conquered the whole, you know, Hellenistic area. He made Greek the common language, so Paul was free to travel all over the Roman Empire and speak Greek during his missionary journey. So God uses these terrible things to use for gospel movement. The fall of the Soviet Union in our lifetime was another example of that. I mean, all of a sudden, I just can't tell you. When I went over there in the early 1990s, right after the wall fell on short-term trips before I moved my family over, you've seen these pictures of United Nations trucks pulling up with rice in these famine areas, and they're cutting the bags open, and the people are clawing over each other just to get a handful of rice. We had people doing that to try to get their hands on a Bible. And I just was sitting there. I was in seminary at the time, and I was sitting there thinking about how many Bibles I have in my shelf at home. 
And these people were clawing at us just to get a Bible. I thought, God, this is a special moment. Something's got to happen here. And of course, the church did respond. And many, many people went. But I think one question that people had, in fact, the nationals had, why aren't the missions redeploying missionaries? Why aren't they taking them away from these unripe fields and sending them to this open place where God has created this unique opportunity where there's a truth vacuum and receptivity is high. And for 70 years, they hadn't had the gospel. And they're begging for people to come in. I had people grabbing me on the street. Tell me about God. I know this sounds like I'm overplaying it. I promise before God, I'm in a church. I'm not lying. They said that to me. Please tell me about God. These are Kairos moments that are happening. The current migration crisis is a Kairos moment. Perhaps one of the biggest Kairos moments in our lifetime. The reason this is important is that time is short and we must be strategic. Now let me just share with you this. This is important. Paul, you'll probably have to cut me off in a minute. All are equally valuable. I want you to know that. Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. So I'm not saying that our next door neighbor that's lost is not as valuable as the Yemenese migrant that's on the island in Greece. But not all have equal opportunity or equal access to the gospel. Lostness is with us everywhere, and we need to live on mission every single day. Yet strategic deployment of resources is a stewardship if we're going to finish the task. We've got to be strategic. We just have to be. I would encourage you to look at a video clip that was put together by Global Frontier Missions. It's called The State of the World. You've probably seen it, maybe some of you. You can look it up on YouTube. You might want to write that down. The State of the World by Global Frontier Missions. What it does, it gives a good picture. It's a little bit dated. It's about 10 years old. But it tells a little bit about just the resource allocation and how we're so out of balance in terms of allocating our resources around the world for missions. In fact, one statistic that stood out to me that I was thinking about today, this week because it was Halloween. They said that Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than they give to missions for the last peoples on earth. We're talking about UUPG. Can you imagine that? I mean, that is embarrassing to me to think that we do that. How must God feel about that? We didn't buy a Halloween costume for our dog. I just want you to know that. One of my personal frustrations, and again, this is just me, and forgive me, I know this sounds indicting, and I don't mean it. I'm, again, I've been a pastor for many years right here in America. But the churches in the West sow the same ground day after day after day when there are many fields with no one sowing. You know, your verse for your conference, Psalm 67 at the end, the earth is yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us. Why? So that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. I've thought about that even in my own passport. You know, having an American passport is a stewardship. But did you know that we're only the 17th most prominent passport in the world? You know what the number one is? Japan. Number two is Singapore. And then it goes down the line. There are many European countries. America is 17 because of our politics. We can't get into as many countries without visas that the other 16 ahead of us can. But we can get into way, way more than Afghanistan. They can only get into 20. They're at the very bottom of the list. So having an American passport is a stewardship. Do we even see it that way? Do we even have passports? Hopefully we all do. And hopefully we're all using them as a stewardship. John Keith Falconer, who was a missionary in the late 1800s, Cambridge scholar, linguist, he said this as he was living in what is now Yemen. 
I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And of course, he died of malaria at the age of 32 in Yemen. You know, I had the privilege of serving for 10 years in Ukraine right after the fall. Receptivity was high. Opportunity to hear was low. It was truly a God-ordained kairos moment. There's no question about it. But over the last 28 years since that's happened, and the nationals kept telling us this, they said it's going to close. Y'all better come. Missionaries better come. It's going to close. And today, it is extremely difficult to get into Russia as a missionary. You have to leave every three months to get a visa. It's hard. It's hard. There's war going on in eastern Ukraine when we're working in Ukraine. There's war now. It's hard to get in there. And so the church needs to think strategically about these kairos moments that God gives us. So much so that we need to be willing to redeploy and respond immediately. God gave me a thought when I was driving back from Phoenix one time with my dad. This was about four years ago before he died. I thought about the model of like SEAL Team 6. You know, the U.S. government sends in SEAL Team 6. They can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours. They grab their bag and they're gone. And they do whatever they do. You know, they rescue people. And, uh, where are the SEAL Team 6 mission teams? We're the ones that are ready in 24 hours to, bam, jump on an airplane and go when moments happen, when collapse happens, when the doors open. Now, we've got groups like Samaritan's Purse and the Baptist Disaster Relief and some of these organizations that do that. But they do it a lot humanitarian aid. We need many, many more. We need church planners. We need evangelists. We need people that are willing to have their bag ready. They're willing to go. Churches need to have resources allocated for that so that we can go and be ready. It's a strategic issue. It's not a theological issue. Paul, as he sat in chains in the Mamertine prison Rome right before he died, he said, you know, I'm sitting here even to the point of being chained up. But you know what he said right after that? But the Word of God had been changed. The Word of God will go forth. And that's an amazing verse, isn't it? Acts 17, 24 through 27. I don't have time to read it. Read it. But it basically says this. It's Paul standing on Mars Hill. He says that God is the one who ordains the boundaries of the habitations of people. In other words, he's the one that's sovereignly controlling the migration issues. Why? So that they'll seek God. Could it not be that this whole migration issue with 65 million people right now on the move outside of their home of birth or on the move today so that they'll seek God? I've been working in Europe where since 2015, over 3 million mostly Muslim refugees have immigrated to Europe. Over half have come through Greek islands where we work. We work on Lesbos Island. We work in a camp called Moria. I was there just about a month and a half ago. There are 9,000 Muslim refugees in that camp that was built for 2,500. We go in there, we serve them, we do all kinds of stuff, but we're able to share the gospel with them on the sly because it's run by the Greek government. It's run by the UN. You can't do it overtly. You can't go tent to tent. Well, you can go tent to tent, but you can't pass out literature, but you have opportunities. A lot of them can speak English. Why? Iraqis can speak English. Afghanis can speak English. Why? Because they had American soldiers there for the last 20 years fighting a war. And God is using that because a lot of them now know how to speak English. We don't have to speak Dari and Farsi and Arabic and whatever other Pashtun. I mean, we need to speak their languages, but you don't have to because God used this tragedy then to bring them to be able to speak English. But I have talked to people from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Somalia, Sudan, Guinea, Congo... The majority that are there are from Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq. Some have come to Christ and returned to their home countries that we're still in touch with because they didn't get asylum. Some have moved on into Europe. Some are still seeking. 
but all are seeing followers of Christ in that camp. And they know that we're followers of Jesus. And it is making an impact on them. And I don't know if you've heard of the Engel scale, you know, where people start maybe up here, they're not all at a minus one. They're not all ready to just step right across, especially some of these hard to reach people. But if you can take them from a minus six to a minus five or a minus four or a minus three through loving them in Jesus' name, my goodness, that's a great work. And so we tell them, they all ask us, why are you here? You're an American. Why would you come here? Well, we're followers of Jesus and we love you. That's what we tell them. And that opens up opportunities. I can't tell you the number of people who said, you're a follower of Jesus? Do you have a Bible? Can we have a Bible? Can we read a Bible? I mean, I, mean, I, I could tell you story after story of people that have gotten a Bible for the first time, that have come to Christ. I was in Germany three years ago as we were doing a survey trip, and I met 20 Iranian Muslim background believers, and they said there were two things that led them to Christ. This may throw your theology off. It did mine for a while, but they're seeing dreams and visions. I mean, they are. You know, now they don't get saved through the dreams and visions, but the dreams and visions say, go seek out Jesus, or this man named Jesus, or find somebody who can tell you about Jesus. They see all kinds of things. But they said it's dreams and visions and the love that Christians show them. That's what's bringing them to Christ. And they're coming. God is doing a major work in the Muslim world right now. Locally, right here in our own community, over the last 10 years, 1,500 refugees from 22 countries have been resettled in the Midlands through uh, the groups that are resettling here. Many from UPGs and UUPGs, unreached people groups, unreached unengaged people groups. At USC, just this fall, I looked this up last weekend when I was sitting in your church at the end of the service. 1,795 international students came with over 1,000 from these eight countries. China, India, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Iraq, Bangladesh, Iran, Taiwan. Those are the top eight countries of international students that are sitting right down the road. Those are from people, from unreached, unengaged people groups. They're right in our backyard. The last thing I'll say is the third thing that I think really will help us finish is that we need to have a mindset of a finisher, not just a contributor. I would encourage us as believers to have a mindset of a finisher of the task, not just be satisfied being a contributor. Now, that may be kind of presumptuous. I mean, because God is sovereign. He's the one that's doing the work. We know that. But when we have a mindset, oh, my God, when I hear what Pastor Cochran shared this morning and the glory of God's at stake and Jesus Christ and the bride being prepared, wouldn't it help if the followers of Christ, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, said, Lord, I want to be the generation that finishes, not just be another generation that passes that baton, I want to be a finisher and just have that as part of who we are, our DNA. Lord, help us be finishers. God's building his church worldwide. Matthew 16, 18 says that. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's going to do it with or without us. It's up to us as to whether we want to participate. And we can decide what level of participation, how we pray, how we give, how we go, and to what degree. You know what? I would just say... In closing, we need to just start right where we are. But don't stop until we finish the job. We need to use whatever we have. And we don't all have the same thing. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same opportunities. We don't all have the same experiences. But we need to take whatever loaves and fishes God has given us. And we need to lay them at the throne of grace. And say, God, take my loaves and fishes. And multiply them for your glory. Whatever it means. And might we do whatever we can. We can't do everything. But we can do something. Now, I've talked a lot about statistics, but I brought this little shoe with me today. 
That's not just any shoe. I picked that shoe up at the, what's called the Life Jacket Graveyard on Lesbos Island. That's where there are tens of thousands of life jackets and rubber boats from the million refugees that have crossed the Aegean Sea from Turkey. Since 2015, over 10,000 have drowned crossing, making that crossing. In fact, you might remember the picture of the little boy on the beach. That's what got the international media attention, the little dead refugee child from Syria. That was in 2015. But I picked this shoe up. It's a little girl's shoe. Did she make it? I don't know if she made it or not. But I do know. I put this on my desk. And it's on my desk in my house, and I look at it, and every day I remember that it's not just about statistics. It's about people for whom Christ died. And so I would just encourage us today that if we must pass the baton on to the next generation to finish, that we will at least have been faithful to do all that we can in our generation to move that work closer to the finish line, whatever that means for you and whatever that means for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. God, I thank you for this church. I know they're a missions-minded church. I just thank you for their heart. I pray they would be generous today, that they would be generous not only with their money, but with their prayers and with their, with their time and energy and talents and their passports and whatever you've given them, whatever loaves and fishes you've given them and me and us, Lord, in this affluent Western culture we live in. Father, you're worth it all. And so, God, we just lay all of this at the foot of the cross. Have your way with us, Holy Spirit of God. We worship you. We love you. Jesus Christ is worth it. And, Lord, we just humbly tell you that we're available. And, God, might we really, really have a heart, like our brother shared earlier, as Isaiah did when he heard the call. Here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.